0: the Digiday Podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am the Senior Media Editor at Digiday.
1: And I'm Kaylee Barber, Media Editor at Digiday.
0: All right, so Kaylee, you had the interview this week and you spoke with Stephanie Freed, who is the Chief Marketing Officer of Fandom. Now, Fandom's kind of a different type of publisher um, because they get into like wikis, which is basically like user-generated content, right? Like what, how (laughs) would you describe Fandom?
1: Yeah, it's like a Wikipedia for everything that's fiction, almost. It's like an entertainment-oriented Wikipedia. So basically, like, I've used it, even not really realizing I was on fandom, but I've used it when I was, like, looking up what, like, what school... Michael Scott went to, or something like that, because you know he's from Pennsylvania, so did he go to Penn State, which is my alma mater? You know, it's like very specific details around like your favorite characters, and it is a wiki, so there is a lot of UGC, and we talk a lot about um, in the episode how community is really important and how there's community contributors and like quote-unquote super fans who are like admin for these wiki groups and it's such a vast platform because there are so many pages that consist of fandoms like wiki that it's just it's almost endless and so Stephanie does a good job of kind of unpacking what all you can use fandom for but then recently fandoms grown um, through acquisitions to include websites that are more like you know, like tvguide.com, like websites that are more traditional publishing oriented so that the users are able to not just like indulge in their favorite shows or like, you know, the things that they're already fans of, but also discover new content, new games, um, new programming and things like that. So fandoms tried to, I think, Expand a little bit more into that more like quote unquote traditional publisher space as well.
0: And imagine like having that user generated content. That means they also have you know a lot of data that can go beyond the usual audience data publishers may have. But like what's been I think you've you know reported on this before too um, with fandom. But what's been their first party data strategy since it seems like every publisher at this point needs to be having some sort of first party data strategy.
1: Yeah. So that's why I wanted to have them on because their first party data strategy to me is very interesting. Um, You're right. Like they have all of these users that are coming to their platform that are, you know, creating content on the platform. And a lot of that is uh, behavioral data that they're collecting. So they're looking at, you know, what specific like minute details of a character are trending and then using that to then help advertisers kind of Both understand like, you know, maybe how they should frame a campaign, but also like even in the research and development phase, like what, you know, studios should be considering when creating that sequel, you know, so it's like a very interesting approach to how, you know trending information or how people are searching on the platform can correlate to like what advertisers can use that data for and so we get into really you know kind of interesting examples of how this data is being used and they have their fan DNA platform which I have written about um, you know about six seven months ago at this point um, but since then they've also developed um, different, uh, research-based categorizations of user behavior and that's used in different capacities on their advertising business uh, in their advertising business and they also have used like you know we get into a couple studies uh, case studies that they've done about specific programming like the uh, sex lives of college girls and how uh, that program helped to inform a few different campaigns as well so um, they really use that behavioral data in a lot of capacities And from that, they're trying to create like a personalization platform as well that Stephanie kind of teases uh, later in the episode that gives users even more control about like what they're being shown and what they're, uh, you know, what they're being advertised. And then that behavioral data is used in a further capacity as well. So it's very interesting first first party data approach and We get into pretty much all of that in this episode. So yeah, a lot to talk about.
0: Yeah, sounds like a nice nerdy conversation. So I'll let you take it away. (laughs) Very nerdy.
1: Thanks, Tim. Stephanie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. All right. So I think to kind of kick off the conversation, be good to set the stage of what fandom is, because I feel like it's this massive website. I'm guessing a lot of users or a lot of listeners have been a user at some point, have searched something from a show and have gone to your website and maybe not realized they were on it. But can you kind of give a little overview of what fandom is and what all is encompassed within the portfolio?
2: So fandom is the world's number one fan platform, and it's the fan source for community and experience around their fandoms. We specialize in particular in movies, TV, gaming, and anime are the key categories that we cover. But basically, the fandom platform has the deepest information and detail around every imagined world. So if you search for Luke Skywalker on Google, the first search result is going to be fandom because it is the deepest, deepest lore about Luke Skywalker, as if he is real, and every detail about his entire life and experience. And from there, you can go to the other 150,000 pages within the Wikipedia wiki and learn even more about every single aspect of that world. We also have a portfolio of editorial brands, GameSpot, a leader in gaming news and reviews. We own Metacritic, which is the leading source in ratings across movies, TV, gaming, and music. We own TV Guide, which is the source for listings and what to watch and how to watch. And then we have Fanatical, which is a PC gaming business. So we really play a role across a fan's complete journey from finding out about a new show or game all the way through to enjoying it more than they've ever enjoyed anything before by understanding every single detail and aspect.
1: Yeah. So when I'm like trying to figure out which college a character said they went to on episode 10 of season four, like 10 years ago, fandom is the site I would likely end up on trying to figure out that piece of information. Again, of a fictional character, but you know, it was stuck in the back of my brain. I had to figure it out. So that's how I've interacted with fandom definitely in the past. I'm, again, guessing a lot of listeners have. Um, But I want to get in before we get down into like the the weeds of fandom and your first party data um, business, I do want to talk about the new acquisitions um, the the editorial brands you just mentioned. Can you talk about the reason behind adding editorial brands like those to your portfolio? Um, I know you mentioned that it's kind of that start of the discovery journey of new you know entertainment. but I'm curious, you know what went into the decision of actually like taking on these rather niche brands. Um, And this, I think was back in the spring, if you could correct me if I'm
2: wrong, but those came from Red Ventures, right? That's right. And it was actually in September. Um, So it's actually, yeah, it's very recent. Um, We started talking to them in the spring, um, but it was a pretty quick process. Yeah. I mean, overall, The reason that we were really interested in these brands was, you know, we really want to deliver a full fan experience. We want to be a fan's one-stop shop for everything that they love in their fandoms. And we did a really good job of helping fans after they started watching, after they started playing. Right, so as someone was already, a, you know, a big Minecraft player. They come to Phantom. They get information, recipes, you know, how to proceed, how to do things within that game to get them to enjoy it more. Um, we had Fanatical, which helps them find and buy new games, but we didn't have anything really at the top of the funnel that actually helps them get information of whether or not they would like that game to begin with, right? And so we wanted to complete basically that fan journey and have everything in one place, ultimately, where we could kind of take a fan across all of those different touch points and service their needs throughout their journey. And so GameSpot, in particular, from a gaming perspective, clearly fits that gap, um, provides news, what's hot, what's new, what you will want to play And then, you know, Metacritic is a great validation tool. All right, I saw these reviews. I saw this news. This game seems to be hot, but am I really going to like it? What do the critics think? What do other players think, right? And so they can do that validation there. And then hopefully, if it's a PC game, they buy that on Fanatical. And then they play and they come to fandom constantly to continue to get better at the game, to dive deeper into the game, to connect with other gaming fans, and so we really wanted to bring those pieces together so you can kind of see how it plays across the journey.
1: And so obviously, uh, I think a brand like TV Guide, most people remember, you know, getting the, I think, weekly copy of it on their coffee table, keeping it there to, you know, look at the literal guide of everything that's going to be playing for that week. Um obviously like the print version of it is maybe shuttered entirely or at least probably not as important to that particular brand anymore. But I'm curious, you know, was the advertising component, given that some of these brands are at the beginning of the user journey now and you're kind of building out more of a funnel, um, to use that term, but I guess how much of the advertising appeal was there in- making this decision, given that, you know, I know you guys work really closely with advertisers at a variety of different points in their projects and um, and campaigns, but with these more discovery brands, how has the advertising component of it, like, appealed to you from a more business standpoint versus that, like, user experience standpoint?
2: Well, so um, with with TV Guide in particular, so TV Guide actually, the The print version of TV Guide actually was separated, was spun off from the digital version of TV Guide years ago. So we actually don't own the print uh, TV Guide. It's actually a separate company. And I don't know very much about it, but we do not own it. So we own the digital um, TV Guide, which I think in particular in this day and age, people have more trouble than they've ever had figuring out where to watch the things that they love and understanding what's on so, you know, people used to have their TV guidebook or they used to go to electronic guides and they used to be able to see exactly what was on TV. But now they have multiple different services living in different, you know, platforms, wh- different apps, and they're trying to move around and there's not a holistic source for what's available to them and then where and when, if it's linear, to tune in. So TV Guide actually plays a really important role in today's world as kind of an aggregator of all that information to make it easy to watch. So that was something that was appealing to us as part of the portfolio. I think from an advertiser perspective, We, as you said, we do work with a lot of brands. We work with what we call endemic brands, which are brands that cover the same type of content that we do. So the movie studios, the streamers, the gaming studios, and then our non-endemics, which are the other categories that might have adjacencies but aren't directly related, like CPG or retail or auto, for example, With the endemic advertisers, they are also playing across the funnel, right? They want to be there at the point of awareness, um, of driving awareness for a new show. A streamer, for example, wants to introduce fans, new fans that don't already subscribe, as well as existing fans to new IP, right? So they want to be there at the beginning of that journey when someone is in the mindset or the use case of trying to figure out what to watch. And then they want to be there while the fan is enjoying that programming as well, right? They want to get someone from episode one to episode two to episode three and hopefully to rewatch episode three again with a friend, right? And ultimately, they also want them to come back. They want them to come back when the show returns, They want them to come back to another show that they might like based on their preferences for other shows. And so we can basically now address those needs throughout that funnel and get to different types of fan segments who are at a different place in their awareness journey through our different properties. So that enables us to offer more. To advertisers who might have bought that elsewhere. Now they can basically have that holistic audience within our ecosystem.
1: Got it. Got it. Okay. And then kind of going back to the audience piece for, I think, fandoms like wiki properties, because it's very expansive. Can you kind of dive into your audience, who's using the platform and how you're really tapping into those users to, uh, learn like the trends of what's going on in entertainment. Cause then I want to get into like your first party data strategy, which I find really interesting, but to start out with audience, the audience piece of it, like who's coming to your website, how do you kind of keep track of everyone that's using it and how in depth are they
2: really, you know, activating on the site because you have user generated content as well. We do. So, you know, on the fandom platform, it is, as you said, very expansive So we have over 250,000 different fan communities and a fan community can be something as specific as Bubblegum Simulator, which is a Roblox game, which is its own community, or it can be a community like Marvel, which has Avengers and Thor and She-Hulk and every basically Marvel property within one huge community. So, the communities range in terms of specific IP all the way to huge universes like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We have a very broad range of fans. We have over 300 million people who come to the platform every month because, as I said, any search about any imagined world is going to lead you directly to fandom. And we you know, because of that have a a huge range. We basically have scale within every demographic. We are very close to 50, 50 male, female. So across all of our properties, obviously some IPs skew much more male and some IPs skew much more female. I'm sure you can probably figure out what some of those are. Our gaming definitely skews more male and younger, And TV is going to skew a little more female and older. Um, And then within specific IPs, it's going to get more drastic one way or another. But overall, because of our enormous scale, we can really get to any demographic group at bigger scale than most other sites and platforms. Um, We are definitely a leader in the 13 to 49-year-old age segment, which is pretty broad in itself. Uh, but we're the number 14 ad-supported site in the US in terms of unique visitors within that age group. And you know, that's ahead of Discovery, Vivo, Vox, Hulu, Roblox, many other, you know, big name companies in terms of the size and scale of the audience that we attract.
1: It's massive. And so I feel like your first party data opportunity is really intense. Um, But to kind of further get into those community groups, I'm curious, like, what engagement looks like? Because I think um, in the past, um, when I covered fandom earlier, you know, part of the community groups had... Like contributors that were audience members, like people who are like moderating conversations, but you know they are fans themselves. Can you talk a little bit about the like super users and how they kind of fit into your you know audience piece of it? Like are they more valuable kind of audiences to tap into when it comes to advertising? Like what's the kind of uh, engagement levels that you're seeing in in those like super users?
2: Yeah, I love that question because I, I'm I'm pretty passionate about our admins and editors, which I also call creators for short. But sometimes I don't like to call them creators because I think creator has a specific association with like an Instagram creator, and and our admins and editors are are really different. Um, they are, we We also call them members of our community. Um, we interact with them very frequently. There's thousands of uh, admins and editors who contribute on our platform, but we also have a group called Fandom Stars, and those are admins and editors who spend particularly like a ton of time <laughs> on our platform editing. And really moderating, as you said, the communities, people who are extremely, extremely passionate about those IP and very passionate about The canon and the truth of making sure that everything is documented exactly as it happened because they want other fans to be able to tap into it. They want people to become bigger fans because of it and to make sure that that's all archived. You know, when I've asked questions about, like, how would you describe yourself? A lot of the time they say historians or archivists, right? Of really making sure that this lives. On and it lives somewhere where people can easily access it. The admins and editors also play a really key role in that they really help keep the fandom platform safe and inviting and welcoming for every and any fan. So we certainly have community guidelines that we have in an overall level, and we come in over the top and we enforce those guidelines when we need to. But the admins and the editors are very aware of those guidelines. Some of the wikis have their own guidelines and they make sure that those are also enforced within their communities. And it creates a really great place of celebration, of really just welcoming, you know, any fan. And that, that's really, really important to us. It's part of our values and in who we are. And the admins and editors are a key, probably the most important piece of bringing that to life and sharing those values with us. So yes, so we, you know, think of them as our partners. We do annual events where we bring all of them together, we get their opinions about the product, about what we're building, our mobile theming editors, all of the new tools that we're enabling for them. And we make sure that they're also part of the process of deciding what we're gonna launch for the broader fan base, because ultimately, they are key fans, right? Um, they're their first and they're there the longest with the IPs. And so we want to understand what resonates with them as well and where and how they want to contribute to that content that, or those features that we continue to develop. So they're really key. We have a, a whole team that works with the admins and editors. I talk to them all the time in different forums. I love getting their feedback and their input. We have task forces. So they're, they're a really, really big part of what we do at Fandom.
1: Are they compensated in any way or is this entirely based on being really super fans of the communities and the shows and games that they're, you know, involved with?
2: Yeah, it's interesting that you ask that because we've done a lot of research to understand like how we can compensate them because they obviously do create a lot of value, right? Their contributions are what makes our platform what it is. And we actually found that monetary compensation was not what they were interested in, which is another thing that's really different from creators on Instagram. They were really interested in a few different things. Number one, they were really interested in that community connection. So a lot of the admins and editors um, live in places or communities where some people might not share the passions that they have or their fan identities. And so the ability to get together, to connect with other groups of people who are just as passionate as they are, is really, really meaningful to them. So we enable a lot of those types of connection moments and experiences for them. Another thing that came to light, which was really interesting to me, was that a lot of them want the skills that they develop. So like, for example, coding and working within the platform, that's actually been a really important component to them. All of the things that they're learning along the way and how that actually helps with their careers. And so we've actually started certification programs, training in SEO, training in social, and other things that help them that they can actually put on their LinkedIn, which was one of the requests as part of what they've accomplished and what they've learned and the skills that they've gained and how that actually, you know, positions them well for things in their careers, which was a really interesting insight. And the third piece was really about access. So, you know, being able to connect with the creators of the IP that they're passionate about, getting information in advance of a launch or a release and we've done a lot of that as well. Um, one great example, we have a really great uh, relationship with the with Rod Roddenberry, who is the son of the Gene Roddenberry, who is the creator of Star Trek. And we have a really great relationship with his production company. They came to our last Community Connect. They did a podcast live um, there with the admins and editors, chatted with them. And the admins and editors of Star Trek get to interact with them, get to see what's coming next in advance, which helps them you know, contribute uh, more to the community. And it's kind of this full cycle, but they love having that connection. Many of the admins and editors say that they know more about the IP than the creators themselves which is sometimes true because they'll remember, they remember every detail, you know? And sometimes the creators don't when it was like, you know, seven books back in a series that they're developing or something. So that's also been kind of an interesting tidbit to me is that these are really the experts. And a lot of the time, the creators, like producers of the shows, et cetera, that we connect the admins and editors with benefit more from that than the admins and editors. <laughs> so it's it's a really nice relationship that we can foster. Yeah.
1: I mean, those are absolutely like really cool perks, especially like having a certification on LinkedIn and things of that nature. Interesting that monetization was not something that they were interested in though. Was it like a survey that you had sent out and like that just wasn't ranked high? Or how did you kind of pinpoint that, you know, payment wasn't something that would, I guess, be necessary? I'm sure people would accept it. But like, how is that, I guess, found out maybe from this group?
2: Yeah. So yeah, surveys. Um, And we do them fairly frequently. So we're always tracking editor satisfaction. We're always tracking what we can do. Um, We have a, a research team that focuses specifically on creators and their feedback and what they're looking for. And that includes things like you know, monetary rewards, other rewards, etc. I don't have the data of the most recent study right on me, but I could certainly share with you offline if not on this podcast about what we, you know, found there in terms of what are the drivers. I'm, you know, there I'm sure are certain groups who would prefer to be paid and others that didn't, but overall that was not in the top three.
1: Now we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Let's switch gears to get more into first party data, because to your point, you have these people who are extremely active, are, you know, willing to talk about, um, you know, beyond the scope of what even the creators remember about these shows, um, very in depth, very active. How is that leading into your first-party data strategy? Because I feel like, you know, this cohort in particular is probably very valuable. And I know you mentioned research, so I feel like there's probably some tie-in there. But looking at your whole audience of, you know, 300 million users per month, how are you developing, you know, insights um, and data from pure, like, kind of inbound search results. It sounds like there's a lot of focus from that group. But um, beyond that, are you mostly focused on kind of behavioral, contextual data? Like, what's the top, you know, insights that you're really hoping to get? Like, what's the most valuable kind of data set from your users?
2: Yeah, So I, am really passionate about data and it's probably the key reason that I, I came to fandom was because I just felt like there was so much insight that could be gleaned out of the data and so many ways that we could use that information to create better fan experiences. You know, as you mentioned, we have so much content. We have 45 million pages of content and each of those pages is unlimited scroll deep. And when you think about it and you compare it to something like a Netflix, to always remember, you know, for years, Netflix has been celebrated as having so much data, right? They know you, they know what to recommend to you when you go to your homepage on the Netflix screen. And they do, they know what you've watched on Netflix, right? And they know what you've completed, right? What shows you've completed and what shows you haven't. And they also know where you dropped off. They know where you paused. But they don't know what characters you love and in what order. They don't know what weapons resonate with you. They don't know what specific details of the storyline you're hovering over or diving into most deeply. And they don't see the connections with shows outside of their ecosystem, right? So they don't know what Hulu shows you love and characters you love. And they don't know what games you love and what you're playing. I think what's really unique about fandom is that we see so much detail about what specifically you're interested in within each IP. And then we see the connections between the IP as well, which enables us to do a lot of really interesting things with the data. And we call our data fan DNA, and that's really our data as an asset, and really it's based on behavioral data of what people are doing on the platform and seeing that at scale across trillions of data points. And we do three key things with that data. So number one is FanDNA Insights. And FanDNA Insights is really our ability to pull together learnings and understanding of an IP at a really deep level. So if we're talking about, let's say... Ted Lasso, because I'm a Ted Lasso fan. I have a poster over my I right shoulder. I was gonna say Although I you feel can't. Like there's a
1: show
2: the, the poster, yeah. I, yeah. I was gonna
1: ask if it was Ted Lasso, but it looked like maybe a cartoon version of him. I couldn't tell.
2: It's Ted Lasso. Sometimes people ask me if it's Ron Swanson, and I'm also a really big Parson Rec fan, so it's actually a good question, but it's Ted Lasso. Um so within Ted Lasso, for example, you know, if we were, you know, helping Apple with their development, we would be able to tell Apple. Here are the characters that are resonating. Here are the parts of their storyline that people are interested in. Here are the episodes that are resonating with people. You might want to go more in this direction or this direction. Here are the games that, you know, people who watch Ted Lasso are likely to play, right? They are really interested in open world sandbox games. So if you're thinking about extending your IP, this is probably your best bet in terms of getting active users to extend into a gaming experience, right? If you're going to develop merchandise, which they develop a lot of around this show, here are the characters you should develop that for, Here are the, you know, other types of IP that you should be promoting around. Here within Apple TV Plus are the other programs that you might want to promote to these audiences. There's so many use cases and so many applications. And we've done a ton of this work um, for multiple streaming companies, gaming studios, etc. to really help with their development. And to me, why this is exciting is I think it can really create better shows, you know, especially in a world where there's so much content production, you know, every streamer is spending 15 to $25 billion every year creating new shows. Having the insight and the intel to understand, you know, for Amazon, for example, for Wheel of Time, how to turn those books into a really compelling series when we have had those book communities live since 2004 right, is incredibly powerful to create better programming for fans, right? That's going to really dive into the things that we already know that they love and bringing those things to life. So I get excited about that just because I, I love research and insights, but I'm also excited about that as a fan because for me, that means that they can cater it more to their audiences. So FanDNA Insights is definitely something, obviously, that gets me pretty excited. We also have FanDNA Activate, which is really about targeting and finding those audiences, whether that's within fandom or outside of fandom. So we're able to help our clients get to certain audiences and pretty niche audiences around certain segments, certain attributes of the game that they're um, focusing in on, for example, or certain attributes of the TV show and finding those audiences at a few levels deeper than just a comedy fan, for example, and to be able to do that off platform as well. And then finally, DNA Engage is really about how we personalize the platform. So when someone comes, for example, they are going to see fandoms and recommendations that are the most relevant to them. They might not always be the fandoms that you might expect, might resonate with that audience, but we see those trends happening under the surface and we're able to provide that service. One of the the other poster behind me is What We Do in the Shadows, which is an amazing comedy for anyone who's so listening. Good. It's so, so good. so good. And that comedy, actually, that show was recommended to me through our recommendation engine, BingeBot. I actually found it through Fandom Recommendation Engine, like my favorite show. So, you know, which demonstrates like how well they know me um, based on the other shows that I watch and they know what I'm going to love or we know what I'm going to love. And we've turned that into also a a new product that we just launched. It's in beta. It's not completely open yet called Fan Central. That's really your home for all of your fandoms. And you basically, when you get there, you're going to see all of the fandoms that you've already visited. So we we have that information. We know that. And now we're going to recommend to you other fandoms that we think you're going to like. And you can add those and you can personalize your experience. And then you're going to be able to see all kinds of content around that. What's new in the wikis? What's trending in the wikis? You're going to be able to see discussions from all the different wikis. You can see articles and news and reviews on your favorite wikis. And we're going to be consistently adding more and more kind of features and content types into that fan feed as well within Fan Central. So that's another exciting application of our data to create a personalized experience that you can really enjoy and celebrate your current fandoms, but also discover the next Phantom that you're going to love,
1: right? And so, for that kind of personalized experience, how does that kind of tie into what advertisers might be looking for? Like, how are you, I guess, monetizing the more personalized experience? Is it something that you look to build out into like a subscription model? Is it more so like a uh, just giving? an opportunity to your advertisers to have a more in-depth understanding of a certain audience segment? And are those people like, do they need to be logged in to have that happen? Like, how are you kind of monetizing the more personalized experience, I guess?
2: So we're we're exploring that now. We'll be testing that because uh, we always want our advertising to feel as much as possible, like also service to fans, right? We want the advertising to be relevant to them and we don't want it to create friction. So, which is something I've worked on my whole career is that balance of a really amazing consumer experience while also being able to monetize so that you can invest more in that experience, but doing that in a way that hopefully adds value as opposed to detracting value. So that's what we're working through now. To, to one of your questions, you do not need to log in to use Fan Central. We really wanted to make it as frictionless as possible and really open up that experience so that people could explore. There will be ways to go deeper and ways to, if you provide your email address, for example, you'll be able to get calendar updates and alerts when your new shows are coming back, for example. But again, all for a benefit for a fan service, not as a blocker to the experience, which is really important to, to all of us, um, you know, whether or not the advertising is more of an overall kind of sponsorship of that experience within the feed, whether or not we actually have cards as you scroll through your experience, which are average, which is advertising, which hopefully is again, targeted to that user relevant to that user within the experience. Or whether when you click out, for example, to read an article, there's obviously advertising that lives there as well. So that's a monetization stream that can happen indirectly from the experience within Fan Central without actually existing within Fan Central itself. So we're exploring all of those avenues. I think as we continue to build in extra features, we'll figure out where there are places where, A, someone might either want to or need to log in. So for example, in order to post on discussions, we do require them to log in, which is really a legal requirement in case something is posted that's not appropriate. um, And we need to have that information. So right now, that's the only reason to log in is if you want to contribute. We'll also have other places or ways that if people want to experience different types of features or functions, you might log into those for different reasons. Sometimes, maybe to connect with others, for example, as we kind of make it more of a community. So, we're working through that, certainly doing a lot of research and seeing what people lean into in the beta experience. It's really a test to see what aspects of the experience are resonating with people, and that's where we're going to continue to lean in. So we're really building as we learn.
1: Got it, got it. Definitely sounds like it's early stages, but a really cool kind of addition to the platform. Um, I I am curious in general with kind of like personalized experiences and, you know, platforms that don't have third-party cookie tracking and things of that nature. Like without the requirement of logging in, how – are you able to remember users that come to your site? Is it like, I guess, dependent on um, cookies at all? Or how have you been able to kind of build that or like circumvent that
2: issue? So our engineering team does not like the word cookies. And they say, we are not using cookies. Now, I don't have them on this call for the technical details, but they've built an identity graph that understands people, basically gives people an ID that I guess is unrelated to the cookie and basically understands that user's behavior within that platform. It doesn't right now go desktop to mobile, for example, so that user going to be a different person um, on, a, on a different platform, but it's able to link together that person's combined experiences And basically put that against a graph of all of those collective experiences that people have to understand the relationships, not just at the unique person level, but across everyone who visits our platform to understand what the user preferences are and the connections. So we are able to, without cookies, when you do get to Fan Central, understand and have what we call your passive fandoms. So the places that you have visited or explored, but you haven't necessarily actively selected. And those are the first things that show up within your experience. And then obviously, as you add fandoms, that's connected to your profile, right? Even in an anonymous user state to understand who you are. And when you do come back, even without being logged in, that information remains part of your experience.
1: Okay. So... Fascinating on the user front. I definitely want to get back into what you were saying about some of the more research-oriented or insights-oriented um, use cases for data, um, because I feel like, you know, to your point, you're helping, you know, studios kind of figure out where development trends should go based on what audiences are liking. Um, you're helping figure out things around merchandising based on uh, favorite characters and things of that nature. Um, I'm curious, you know, how else you're using research or doing deep dives into these trends to help figure out, um, you know, correlations to some of the non-endemic brands that you mentioned working with and how some of these insights can be used in more um, unexpected ways, I feel like. And I know we talked about this back in March about some of the, you know, interesting kind of utilizations, but um, I know you guys kind of recently did some uh, deep dives into like I think it was the sex lives of college students and like Marvel in DC. And obviously big releases happened really recently in uh, Marvel in DC. So curious kind of, you know, what else you're able to glean from these data points that, To your point, not every, you know, entertainment kind of company can provide or, you know, smaller, more publications aren't able to, you know, dole out as well. What are some of the, I guess, maybe case studies or examples of research that you can share in that regard?
2: Yeah, of course. So we do a series of different studies throughout the year where we... Pair attitudinal data that we get from our fans along with the behavioral data to tell really holistic, compelling stories against different categories. So we do inside gaming, we do inside streaming, we do inside experiences, and inside fandom. Inside fandom is our big annual study, our biggest study. We actually just came off of a couple of weeks where we did a really incredible VIP event with gaming and TV and movie executives, small intimate gathering in LA, where we brought about 50 executives together. And we did a deep dive into our research and insights, a really amazing panel with Marvel and Activision and Riot and Hyundai. And... Really dove deep into the research and our learnings this year. We tend to focus on different themes, different things that we're seeing, different trends that we see throughout the year. And this year, Inside Fandom was really about fan identity. Fan identity is something we talk about a lot at fandom. It's how we think about the experiences that we create, our product development, it's how we think about our acquisitions. You know, we talked a little bit about that at the beginning of, of the call, the fan identity, you know, one of the things we used to say, you know, certainly when I started as I used to say super fan a lot, um, super fans, and we've got these super fans. And at the end of the day, actually, when we looked at our fan base, certainly we have quote unquote, super fans, however you define those. We also have, you know, pretty big fans and then we have average fans and then we have casual fans and we're thinking a lot about that and kind of the broad spectrum of how people interact or engage with different IPs and we were thinking about the fact that you know some people simply when you when you ask them tell me about yourself and they say oh you know I'm Stephanie I'm from Michigan I have a kid I like to roller skate and I'm a parks and recreation fan, right? Does that IP actually show up in that list of what defines someone? So when they want to tell you about themselves, is that part of how they literally like describe themselves and part of their identity? And there's a broad spectrum of how and why people interact with entertainment and that changes IP to IP. And so we looked into kind of those deeper fan identities or fan profiles to understand the composition of fandom, because in this day and age, when there's so much to watch and so much to play, it's certainly challenging for advertisers and brands to to break through. And so getting a better understanding for their fans and their potential fans can help them understand their... Market development strategy and their marketing strategy, and and how they, you know, drive awareness and how they drive retention as well. So, we uncovered four different identity segments. One of them was the advocate, kind of what I was talking about, which is that IP is like part of who they are, it's part of how they would introduce themselves, and it's deep into their life. They might have like a tattoo. Or a nickname or a pet that's named after that IP because they want it to be part of their life every single day. Then there's the intentionalist, and an intentionalist is someone who really likes specific categories. For example, they're intentional about what they're watching and why they have a specific, you know preference genre that they lean into. They're interested in the awards. They're interested in reviews. They're kind of a fan of fandom, if you will. And they lean in depending on how those IPs meet their preferences the culturalist just wants to have like water cooler conversation. So they have kind of FOMO of everything. They don't want to miss out on things that people are talking about at dinner. They want to be able to have a point of view and they want to watch it just so they can have those almost like sound bites or opinions mm-hmm. in a larger setting. And then finally there's the flirt and the flirt is really just like, they're fans of entertainment. They're probably what we call more casual viewers Where they like to have it on, they like to have it playing while they're getting dressed, you know, in the morning, and they like to have it on at night, but what is on isn't necessarily as important. So they might like or have preferences for certain IPs, but it's less of an intentional behavior. And what we did with these segments is we really tried to understand how different IPs kind of are composed across these different fan identities. And you mentioned Sex Lives of College Girls, which over-indexes on advocates and intentionalists. So there's people who feel really close to Sex Lives of College Girls, and they're really intentional about watching it. And what that means is, you know, as HBO is thinking about their campaign and the, the new season, it's thinking about how do they then tap into those people who are already obsessed with the program because a lot of other potential advocates and intentionalists also hear about things from friends and family, like through their networks, through people who are really passionate about it. And so a strategy of actually connecting with those influencers and as opposed to a big broadcast ad campaign might actually be more effective doing like unique experiences, kind of tapping into that you know fan identity would be more effective. And And are those insights only
1: able to really be applied to, like, the studio that produced the show, for example, like HBO uh, Max in this situation? Or um, are you able to kind of use those insights in other advertising categories or even, I guess, internally, really? Um, Like, how else, I guess, does the deep dive into those, like, categorizations of viewers – Change you know the outcome of campaigns for other advertisers.
2: Yeah, so it helps with other advertisers in, in a few different ways. So number one, a lot of our non-endemics have adjacencies into entertainment and gaming. So Wendy's, for example, is is big into gaming um, and connecting with gaming audiences. And so they're interested and are a lot of the time doing partnerships with different games and understanding those fan audiences directly. But it's also helpful even when those brands who aren't directly associated with IPs that are in entertainment and gaming, when they're advertising with us and they're understanding the different identities and the ways that different fans are connecting with the IPs that they're advertising within can also be really helpful in terms of how you kind of cater your creative, what types of things you would want to sponsor. So a lot of the time with things that, for example, are more for advocates or intentionalists, you know, sponsoring an experience around that, sponsoring branded content, as opposed to more of a broad tentpole product program, that's just surrounding that content within the wikis is going to be more effective. So Mm -hmm. if it's, you know, uh, Honest Trailer, Sex Lives of College Girls, which is really fun going a lot deeper with kind of the in crowd. That might be something that Lexus would sponsor as opposed to just running across those IPs. So we're also able to help them tailor their programs around those IPs in different ways and really pick out and pull out the IPs that we think are going to be effective in different types of environments where we develop custom solutions, et cetera, outside of the platform as a complement to broader media plays. In terms of you know how we use that internally, I would say too, you know, the types of content, even if you're thinking about fan central that we pull out, the things that we think are going to be more interesting to those types of fans based on the share of those audiences within those communities and within those IPs can also help us inform even kind of the order of the content that shows up in the feed and the different types of content that we even show around those IPs that we think are going to resonate. So discussions might resonate less with certain communities and more with others, for example.
1: So to wrap up this conversation, I wanted to kind of pick your brain about um, basically the, the state of advertising. I know we talked a lot about first-party data and a lot about advertising partners. Um, And kind of looking ahead into 2023, what are you kind of seeing from brands that you're working with, from clients that you're working with? Is there still, you know, a lot of, um, you know, intention around these more in-depth campaigns, I would say, um, that likely, you know, require a higher budget to get more of these insights? Like, how are you seeing, the beginning of next year kind of unfolding so far? Um, And is there any kind of signals that, you know, entertainment brands or some of these more endemic categories might be, you know, pulling back spend, you know, given some of the, you know, possible layoffs that are, you know, to come in the studios?
2: So, you know, definitely the market has been soft in, you know, Q3, Q4. We do expect that to continue and we're planning for that. You know, we've seen more pullback, honestly, in the non endemic categories than in the endemic categories because consumers have tended to continue to spend there. Um, I think entertainment is one of the things that, especially, I mean, funny. I've never talked about this, but when you think about, you know, in the depression, I don't know if you remember this, I, I didn't live through the depression, obviously, but I always remember hearing stories that during the depression, everyone went to the movies because they were, they, they wanted to escape the, the reality of the world that they were living in. And I think what tends to happen, we saw this during the pandemic too, right? Is that when things are, are hard, when the economy is down or bad, entertainment is something that's a low cost compared to, you know, travel, for example, right. And is B something that they can escape through. Right. And, and I think the combination of that with the fact that coming out of the pandemic, the studios, gaming and TV and movie have a ton of releases because they just had so many things that were backed up during the pandemic. So production has ramped. They have a lot of things coming out. So I think the combination of having a lot of content to release as well as consumers wanting to spend within this category means that the entertainment and gaming verticals will definitely be stronger and kind of outpace the market. So we are seeing that. I think one of the other things that might feel counterintuitive, but that we've definitely seen as well as is, is a lot of leaning into experiences. I do still think that there's a post-pandemic desire to kind of get back out there and explore and it, you know you might not at this point decide to take your first trip to Hong Kong but you may decide to go to a really fun New York Comic Con experience for example and get to explore and get to interact and you know cosplay and all of that and so i think advertisers have really leaned into those experiences so we've really seen a big return of our experiential business and i know a lot of other brands are seeing that as well again a combination of the advertisers wanting to engage with fans in really fun, authentic ways, which real life allows you to do. And I think fans also wanting to really get back into that at full scale to enjoy those experiences and connect with other fans. So we've certainly seen that stand out in terms of continuing to trend, even when there's pullbacks in other areas. So that's that's what we've been seeing. I think certainly that the portfolio kind of looping back to the beginning of our conversation of assets across the funnel too also helps us stand out with advertisers because we are we're unique in our ability to really kind of go across the funnel as well from a share perspective. So we're leaning into that, you know, right now and even more so starting in Q1 kind of kicking off at CES is like how of all of those different parts of our ecosystem play together and how you can really plan a cohesive campaign with fandom. And so I think that will also help us stand apart within the challenging environment.
1: Well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Thank you so much for joining us and for diving deep into all of this information. I really appreciate you taking the
2: time. Thank you so much. This was really fun. It was great to chat. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back next week with another episode.